2: Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Senna, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Christopher R. Martin, the author of No Longer Newsworthy, How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class, from ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University Press. In No Longer Newsworthy, Martin chronicles the deteriorating fortunes of the U.S. working class through a close examination of how it is represented in mainstream news. Chris Martin is a professor of digital journalism in the Department of Communication and Media at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, Iowa. He is the winner of the 2020 CLR James Award from the Working Class Studies Association and a Choice Outstanding Academic Title for 2019. He is also the author of an award-winning book on how labor unions are covered in the news media, Framed, Labor and the Corporate Media. Martin is a contributing scholar to the Center for Journalism and Liberty and a regular contributor to the Working Class Perspectives blog. Chris Martin, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you very much, Thomas. nice to be here. Um, you begin the book in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump, and the sort of bewildered and consternated reaction to, of many in the mainstream media over the Trump voter. Um, but especially in the first chapter, uh, you look at Trump's performance at the carrier plant in Indiana. Can you tell our listeners why this moment illustrated so much that has gone wrong in how mainstream media uh, covers labor issues?
1: Well, it was interesting. Um, it was a uh something that happened actually before Trump actually became president, Uh, he'd been elected and it was in that interim period uh, between election and inauguration. Um, There was a carrier plant uh, in the Indianapolis area that was going out of business. Uh, They were moving the jobs uh, south of the border uh, to Mexico. And um, Trump had, when he was on the campaign trail uh, in 2000, actually people had complained about it and he said, yeah, something should be done about that. But he really didn't. um, Take it seriously, and then there was actually a news package on NBC um, after he was elected, talking about this, and it was uh, workers from that same plant uh, complaining about, uh, you know, nothing was being done about it. So Trump decided to, um, with his uh, vice president elect Mike Pence, who was the at that time still the governor of Indiana, he hadn't resigned yet, um, went to Indianapolis, and uh, and said they were going to save jobs. So they they went in and. And they had a big announcement, a uh, big media event, and the media, the, the mainstream media, congratulated them and hailed them as, as, you know, this is a guy who's getting things done. Um, as it turned out later, um, and the uh, the uh, the head of the union uh, of those workers uh, in Indianapolis at the carrier plant revealed, only about half of those jobs were saved. Uh, and so uh, Trump responded by insulting the guy on um, on Twitter, like like he has been apt to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it ended up, you know, being something where I think the mainstream media um, really missed the mark. Um, they didn't look closely at it. They were kind of willing to celebrate the president without looking closely that this was not a very good deal. Uh, and in fact, it was a deal that was made uh, with millions of dollars um, for carrier and incentives. Um, and it's ironically, a deal that Mike Pence had not made as governor of Indiana. He pretty much told the workers, sorry, can't help you. And then Hmm. decides, you know, with pressure as the, the new vice president-elect to to try to make something work. Um, it was interesting because the in the, in the coverage, um, there was no coverage about the union and what they had done and tried to do for um, months and months to keep that plant uh, alive because actually was it wasn't losing money. It was a profit-bearing uh, plant, but uh, they just thought they could make more money uh, in Mexico. Um, and it was also interesting because it was ultimately a political story. So the The workers that were interviewed in the media um, later on were the who were praising Trump were white, uh, mostly male workers. Um, And that, you know, that was kind of shorthand for these are these are Trump people. Um, What's interesting about that plant is that it's about 50% um, black uh, in terms of the workers and also about 50% women. And those voices were just kind of missing because they didn't fit this narrative that Trump is really the savior of the white working class.
2: And also, it doesn't really fit with how the media has been representing the working class more generally. And I want to return to that idea um, mm-hmm. in at the in the last chapter of your book, where we talk about, um, uh, the teacher strikes, or the of what what another guest on my show is called the teacher insurgency. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go to uh, give a little bit of history about how how we've come to this. Um, you offer a history about how labor has been reported in U.S. N- newspapers, uh, especially, and then how that has shifted over the years. Can you give our listeners a little sense of what that process uh, has looked like?
1: Yeah, it was, it was something that was very interesting to me, and it kind of came to me um, one t- one day in an archive um, in Cleveland, uh, and I was looking at the the archives of uh, a former Cleveland Plain Dealer labor reporter, and what was interesting in the late fifties and early sixties, as I looked at his articles, there would be things like like transportation strikes, and he would write about you know the the um, the the ongoing. Um, Negotiations between labor and uh, and the um, and the administration trying to figure out what exactly uh, what the deal was going to be in the new labor contract. Um, and what was missing in those stories and was kind of uh, surprising and kind of refreshing in a way. There weren't a lot of stories about uh, the people who were affected by the strike. The, the treatment of the, the stories was: there's a strike on. In this case, is a transit strike. Um, some people are not going to be able to get to work. They're going to have to walk. They're going to have to hitch hitch rides. They're going to have to find another way to get there. But it was taken as this is kind of a normal thing. You know, this, you know, people will strike, Um, you know, we're we're all in support of it in a way. I mean, they didn't say it that exactly, but it was kind of like, you know, this is what we do as, as citizens. You know, we have to work around the strike ourselves, Uh, but that's just kind of an everyday thing of life. Um, So that was kind of a a common way that, uh, that strikes in particular, were handled through the, you know, the fifties and sixties and by the, but by the late sixties and early seventies, uh, and this kind of fits in, uh, as newspapers start to become, uh, publicly traded, uh, uh, bigger conglomerates, we start to see, uh, a different way that these, these stories are treated. And we start to see the rise of, um, of people and stories about inconvenienced, uh, uh, upscale consumers, um, and uh, I, actually, my other book that you mentioned, Framed Labor in the Corporate Media, I talk about the 90s and this is you know, all through the 90s and, and even 80s before that, this is a common thing. In fact, if you saw you know, an airline strike, you'd probably, you know, one of the first things you would see in, in a TV story is they're interviewing people who were gonna be on a flight and couldn't get it because, the, because these darn <laughs> workers are striking. Um, so we start to see the rise of that narrative which hadn't been there before in the late 60s and in the early 70s, carried through to today even, you know, it's a, it's a kind of story that focuses more on people as consumers rather than as citizens. And it's an interesting way. Um, I don't think there was a top-down edict saying like, you know, all news stories are going to be this way, but it made sense in the, in the um, I guess, in the corporatization of news um, and these news organizations were actually having labor problems themselves. And it made sense in the, in the political winds of the uh, of the 70s uh, and into the 80s for sure.
2: Yeah, and your your chapter on how newspapers began to market themselves um really really sort of clarifies a lot of that story. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter, the the way that um well, I guess this gets to the subtitle, right? of the, the sort of the moment when uh, newspapers began to abandon the working class and and focus on upscale consumers.
1: Absolutely. So I, you know, I was seeing it in the in the articles about um, strikes and things like that, as I'd mentioned, but I was, you know, I wanted, uh, you know, it's kind of a mystery to unravel. I wanted to say, is there evidence that they actually did change who they were thinking of as their target consumers? Um, Because when you're at a news organization, I mean, you kind of, there's a common understanding about who you're writing for and who you're reporting for. And if it's not all citizens, but it's a certain group of citizens, that, that changes. You just kind of absorb that in the organizational principles of the place where you're working. You kind of, you know, that's who you do your news for. So I, I was looking at editor and publisher, which uh, has been around for more than 100 years as a magazine, and especially in the 20th century, it was really the Bible of the newspaper industry. And so if you were a newspaper or a newspaper group and wanted to, you know, get national advertisers advertising in your paper or papers, you would put an ad in editor and publisher and say, you know, you know we're this, uh, you know, we're the Cleveland plain dealer in Cleveland, or we're the we're the Detroit Free Press, the Detroit News, right. and this is the kind of audience we have. Um, and what you started to see, and, you know, as we go from the 50s and 60s into the 70s and 80s, is that all of the newspapers across the country start talking about not, not how you can just get everyone who lives in the metro Detroit area, but you can get more upscale readers. And they actually start saying, like, we, our readers are you know, greater than average in terms of you know household income, in terms of education, uh, and, and all those other markers of of being an upscale type of consumer. So it's really interesting. They actually switched who they were focusing on, uh, and the media stopped you know focusing on. And by the media, I mean newspapers, but we see it in other media as well, focusing on just uh, the um, the place that they're serving, the metro area or the state or the or the country, and and instead going for upscale uh, consumers, because that was in, in especially in the late sixties and early seventies, what business was starting to focus on. Those are the people were the demographics we really need to reach. So it's not the general public, but it's this very specific slice of the public. And in doing so that comes back, as you mentioned to the, the subtitle, how the mainstream media abandoned the working class. And that's, that's really what happened there.
2: And, and it's also curious that of course this coincides, I, you know, not coincidentally with a, with sort of a the beginning of a very dramatic fall-off in newspaper readership.
1: There really was. Um, You know, it was interesting. uh, People with a high school uh, education or less were some of the the biggest group of readers of newspapers. Uh, And that, you know, if you start uh, not paying attention to them, those are the people who just kind of slide off uh, in readership and you're going for increasingly, you know, maybe a more lucrative market, but it's a much smaller market to go for upscale consumers. The other thing that happened that kind of reinforces this in the 70s we start to see uh, the decline of the labor beat and the rise of more uh, workplace lifestyle columns yeah. which is which is more about like it's more for office workers so it's a, you know there are things like how to handle office romances <laughs> what to wear on casual friday and things like that um how to get along with your boss and not you know it doesn't really uh, address you as a worker the other thing that happens, and we see this you know, as well, the rise of personal finance news. So things that we kind of take for granted, like Money Magazine and uh, the big business sections um, and newspapers and on television, uh, business news channels, um, that all happened starting in the 70s. So it's this idea that we all have pots of money to invest, that we're the future millionaires um, if we are just smart enough to pay attention to how to invest our money wisely. And again, that's that's for a segment of america that can afford that most people sure. you know aren't playing the stock market
2: at least not directly right i mean again that's so it, right. it, it's it's the workplace is still being covered right there are still people who are um, thinking about the workplace and there are still people who are thinking about it but the 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 vantage point is no longer that of the worker
1: yeah and you really see that fall off you know uh, um, all around the country, I mean, there were a number of labor reporters. Um, there was kind of the height of it in the 1950s. Um, the New York Times, for example, for a couple decades there had, you know, typically at least four reporters um, on the labor beat. And by the 19, eight, end of the 1980s, it was down to one, and it's just still there. And if you talk to them, you know, they would say, "Well, we have other people, you know, step in on on labor news uh, from time to time on this angle and that angle." But, but you know, it's it's. You wouldn't do that to sports, right? I mean, they wouldn't say, <laughs> you know, on the NFL beat, uh, we're just going to have one person, and you know, we'll have some other people come in and report on that, you know. And you're going to notice as that they don't, you're not going to get the best news about the NFL if if that's not what they usually cover. Um, so then that's kind of how labor is treated in the United States.
2: And anymore, if you want to cover the NFL, you have to be a labor reporter as well. I mean, just, <laughs> That's right. Just trying to just trying to to wrap my head around the vicissitudes of, of um, uh, salary caps and various other collective bargaining issues is just mind-boggling when I listen to it on the radio.
1: Absolutely. It's actually sometimes those you know th- sports um, labor issues aren't covered well because they don't have a labor journalist on them. They have like a sports right. person on them. Uh, so it's not going get, to get covered very well. I mean, I, I would ar- always argue for more labor people because, you know, it affects, you know, we have more than 160 million people in America that work. I mean, we have a lot of things to cover. Um, and, and you know, it, the newspaper record in the New York Times has one labor reporter. Um, you know, there's really no one uh, in any of the networks that actually do that. Uh, there's one person now back again at uh, at NPR, but that, you know, it's such a big, uh, enormous sure. beat and just not enough people.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah. Um, So this leads, of course, to the the different ways or the different narratives that start to emerge about workers. And you focus especially here on transit strikes again, but um, I think it's worth revisiting uh, some of those ideas.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the comparisons I do uh, looks at a a transit strike um, 40 years in between, one from the 40s and one from the '80s in New York, um, and again in, in the '40s, it was really about the workers um, and uh, and what kind of negotiations are happening, what are the major issues, and uh, you know, hundreds of, actually there were hundreds of thousands of people uh, that were displaced. Sure. Um, and then we cut to one in the 1980s, um, and where we uh, we had a, you know about 900,000 uh, people <laughs> commuters displaced um, four years earlier by the 1980s is about 90,000 displaced, So just one tenth of that, but that becomes the major lead of the story about how, um, how commuters were really, uh, cut loose and, and couldn't be, uh, and couldn't get to their place. And, you know, in New York times, there was a interesting, uh, photo of, uh, three kind of rumpled, uh, um, executives, uh, you know, uh, work, uh upper middle-class business executives in their trench coats and they're in, uh, a really kind of crummy looking uh, you know graffiti covered subway, mm-hmm. um, and which is not the regular way they go to work. and so it was just very it was it was like they were lost and and confused, and, and you know we're to have pity on them. um you know, and that they have to you know endure a little bit of discomfort there. but uh, but, you know, we we don't measure that against what's the discomfort of of the workers who are on strike, who you know are obviously striking because there is something. Not not going well financially in their lives, or not going well in terms of the work rules. So, um, it's so it's really fascinating to look at these differences from from one time to the next, and how the stories uh, change so much.
2: And this is, of course, also where you start to fill in some of the gaps about how conservative media um, start to take up some of these issues of the abandoned working class.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so we men- we mentioned that the the working class were abandoned by the mainstream press as as they went towards a more upper middle-class audience. So, so working-class readers really didn't have anyone kind of appealing to them or kind of calling out to them. Um, conservative media, which was just kind of growing in the 1970s, saw an opportunity. And while they didn't go for all of America's working class, they started uh, uh, trying to appeal to America's white working class. And so we start to see it a little bit with you know Rupert Murdoch, the Australian, buying the New York post later he gets American citizenship so he can you know, buy a lot more <laughs> yeah. um, in the seventies. Also the Christian broadcasting network, which um, which wasn't just about religion, but it was really a, a political movement. Um, and they were in, interested in the white working class, uh, Rush Limbaugh on deregulated radio in the 1980s, Fox news with, with Rupert Murdoch again in the 1990s. And then, you know, as you start to see internet sites like the drudge report and Breitbart and a number of others from the nineties into today, and these are all really appealing to, um, you know, the aggrieved uh, and abandoned white working class. So it's, it's really about uh, appealing to them and, and, and their grievances, which I think helps to set the stage for the politics we've seen in the last decade or so.
2: Although it's not, again, it's appealing to their grievances, but not necessarily to their identities as workers or as, as part of labor, Right.
1: No, you're absolutely right. It's really it's not about that. In fact, I mean, I think you would be shocked to turn on Fox News and you you're know right. them them talking to uh, white working class people saying we need to raise raise your minimum wage or you should have you know you should have health care. It's not those things. Instead, um, we see the culture wars. So it's appealing to them, you know, in terms of religious ideas. It's appealing to them uh, in terms of you know being anti immigration and you know, it's appealing to them in terms of you know the the supposed war on Christmas. Like all these right. things that are supposed to be, you know, that are kind of rocking their world culturally, you know, these these are the bad things that uh, that the left, including, you know, labor unions is bringing to you. So they really try to drive a big wedge, you know, and this politically, this happens as, as early as Nixon in the late 60s and early 70s, trying to drive a wedge between um, the left and, and the working class. So, um, and we, you know, we see that, you know, really work well uh, for the Republican Party in terms of trying to, you know, be be talking about uh, cultural issues and not economic issues.
2: Right. Because, and really at this point, no one is really talking to workers as workers. And and here you start to identify even some of the ways that um, in presidential rhetoric, uh, the idea of the working class begins to disappear.
1: That's That's right. I mean, if you go back and look at you know, things that Eisenhower said as, as kind of a moderate Republican, you know, in the, the 1950s, I mean, they sound, they sound, you know, almost Marxist in comparison to things <laughs> today. Um, you know, it, there, there is this kind of, um, stepping back and kind of, uh, nervousness about af- associating yourself, um, with the working class and using terms like the working class. So we start to see, you know, over from the sixties into the seventies and eighties and nineties, um, this moderating, um, not using the terms class, but uh, but using terms, and you, you'll hear it even today, things like working families, right? Um, which which is trying, just trying to you know do a little t- turn on that, like we're talking about people who work, but we're also appealing to this kind of conservative notion about families. So it's working families instead of the working class, and, and try to make class invisible because um, the, you know the Republican Party and even to some extent the Democratic Party is not doing a very good job on that through the 80s and into the 90s. They're kind of scared of taking that kind of position.
2: Yeah, so it, it's curious. I mean, I assume it's it's part of the same uh, kind of political drift that we see in the news. But, you know, what's – and as you said, the the Democrats are in a lot of, a lot of ways really no better at this than, than the Republicans. But what do you su- suspect it accounts for that abandonment of – Addressing people as workers—that's a know, tough th- question. Sorry.
1: Yeah, well, I think it. I think it. It is a, a tough one, but I think it actually fits in with this idea that, especially, was um, popular in the 1980s um, under Reagan, that that labor unions were bad things. That they were kind of the the source of our problems. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't capitalism. It wasn't like the you know the export of capital. It wasn't about uh, you know the race to the bottom in terms of wages. You know, all things that were happening, you know, in a big way in the 1980s, including, you know, less taxes on the very wealthy. But it was it was blaming the the uh, labor unions for being greedy. And, and you know, the important moment that's mentioned uh, in the book and by many others is Reagan's firing of the striking uh, yeah. air traffic controllers, the PATCO workers. Um, and that just really, you know, in in an instant just changed uh, the the attitude towards labor and far fewer uh, strikes happened, you know, in the decades after that because uh, people were scared uh, that you would just you would just fire the workers and bring in replacement workers, which is what, what Reagan did. So it really there was all this blaming on labor unions, and and indeed, you know, labor unions weren't perfect in the sixties and seventies, and they had gone grown kind of fat and greedy, um, and some of them were corrupt. But you know, you could easily say the same thing for businesses Absolutely. in the sixties and seventies and
2: eighties. Uh, and Nineties, two you know, 2000, 2020.
1: Yeah, <laughs> thanks for ring us up to date on that. That's it's important. Yeah. Um, so you know, so so there's a big clamp down. You know, at the same time we don't have that clamp down on business, but we have a huge clamp down on um, on labor. And you know, some labor unions, you know, going into receivership and being run, you know, run uh, by by government appointed people. And uh, you know, so there's there's really not a lot of freedom to labor unions and not a lot of freedom to organize anymore it had been made difficult you know back in the 50s and sure. as um, businesses had started to change and decentralize it it's become much more difficult to try to organize people so you know it, it, we can even look at where we are right now i mean there's a there is kind of a resurgence in labor um labor energy and you talked about the the teacher insurgency but it's really difficult to do right now. It's much more difficult to organize these days oh, sure. um, than it than it was, uh, you know, several decades ago, and you know, starting with especially Reagan in the eighties.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, this again, this isn't in this isn't in your book, but just you know, having grown up in Metro Detroit, and of course, you know, sort of a you know the the home front, if you will, of a kind of labor aristocracy around. Workers with the UAW, mm-hmm. um, there was this kind of white-collar resentment, I would describe, uh, against people who were living these, you know, who had a place in the north country and who had more than one car and who had all of these sort of, you know, markers of an upper-middle-class life, but you know, who had, had who had only, you know, gone to high school and, and got a job at a, at a factory. Mm-hmm.
1: um yeah I, th- I think there was a a sense uh, the take on labor you know had shifted from like you know how do I join and how do I get that lifestyle to you know these people are are greedy and and taking money away from me so it was, it made every it actually made the situation bad for all workers rather than bringing up workers who you know into that kind of middle class lifestyle it ended up you know having them be angry at people who had achieved that yeah um, meanwhile so that you know we see a huge, you know, uh, divide starting in the eighties between, you know, the, the upper classes and, and the working class. And, uh, we still, we're still, um, living that life right now.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, from presidential rhetoric, you go to Google, um, and, and track how the idea of class, um, is framed in, in sort of a, a wider frame, I guess
1: it's interesting. There are um, one of the things I was looking at again to try to fill out, you know, this whole history was to figure out. Um, Google has something called the n-gram, and people can try that it's just the letter n and with the word gram, g-r-a-m, and uh, it tracks the use of certain terms in books, you know, uh, in millions of books um, for the the entire 20th century and then a little bit into the 21st. And, What you start to see is the the shift of some of the language of the way we talk about things. For example, you know, the workplace um, uh, starts to... um, Actually, we start to talk less about corporations uh, and more about the workplace, which actually kind of gets away from Mm -hmm. thinking about who's actually running the workplaces. Um, We start to see the rise of certain terms like entrepreneur and Wall Street uh, in books, you know, and especially from the 1980s onward and the decline of uh, terms like working class. Um, we start to see the decline of uh, terms like uh, citizen, the rise of terms like consumer, um, the, the decline of empl- uh, worker and the rise of employee. Um, so all of those things start to suggest that, that we're becoming much less class sensitive, much more uh, uh, sensitive and, and interested in terms like uh, um, you know being team players and employees rather than being workers. Uh, investing in Wall Street, um, being an entrepreneur, um, and all that fits in with you know how, how the media really pushed that as well with the workplace lifestyle columns, with uh, personal finance news, and the decline of the labor beat. So it actually you see it. That's the same things reflected in uh, in books as uh, as illustrated by Google's database.
2: And and one of the terms, and you spend a chapter on this, uh, that starts to rise to prominence, is job killer. Um, and I wonder if you could walk our listeners through a little bit about how this phrase uh, came into being and and what effect it seems to have
1: yeah it's it's been very effective um, it's a it's a term that was not not used um, through most of the 20th century and then we start to see a little bit of it in the 1980s uh, but it becomes a really big important term in um, really is deployed by Republicans and uh, Newt Gingrich, who is the, the head of the House Republicans uh, through part of the 90s, in, in arguing uh, at first against uh, Bill Clinton uh, and, and his, uh, when he was a new president. And the idea was that, um, is that the worst thing you could pro- do as a politician is to kill jobs, right? I mean, you, and that was, that was the idea, at least. And what uh, you know, Democrats like Bill Clinton were doing were maybe supporting labor unions, and labor unions are job killers, maybe supporting, uh, you know, business regulations. Those are job killers later on, you know, anything that would be trying to, uh, alleviate uh, climate change. Those are job killers. So any kind of regulation or, or labor union that would get in the way that would be seen as anti-business is, is a job killer. And it's very effective. And it was most effective in the media. I mean, you certainly have the conservative media doing that unproblematically, um, but, um, you see the, the mainstream media using this in unproblematic ways as well. So rarely when the term job killer was deployed um, by a politician, was it called into question or was it fact-checked at all? You know, you, you know, if you're charging that someone's killing jobs, what exactly are you talking about? What kind of jobs? How many jobs? And so they got to kind of use that without with impunity. Um, so it was deployed in a big way towards Clinton in the 90s. And then in even, you know, many times that amount uh, in the, and uh, in Obama's administration, uh, starting uh, in 2008 um, through 2016. Um, so anytime he tried to make a move, something was, was called a job killer. And what's interesting about that, I think the press is starting to be um, a little bit more um, critical about that because the idea, and, and I, think it's, I think it's because of COVID and this idea of essential jobs and people, some people not going back to jobs, uh, yeah. it's like not every job is great so right. when you're saying it's you're a job killer, what jobs are you talking about? And and actually, who wants a seven twenty five dollar an hour job yes. these days, right? I mean, that, that doesn't offer any benefits. So so for Republicans, it's always been any job is a good job, and for and for I think a lot of Americans now, I think they're saying like, wait a minute, I'm going to be you know in danger. Like not any job is a good job. I mean, I, I'm going to do this. I want to get you know paid this amount, a living wage. I want to. I want these kind of um, benefits, et cetera. So, so that, that's been an interesting history, but it's been a, a very powerful term, you know, until just recently.
2: Although, again, I guess in thinking about that issue and, and, you know, what seems to be a kind of refusal of bad jobs on the part of American workers is still being framed largely as the inconvenience that it causes to consumers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's still that frame. You're right. Uh, so, um, so people are having bad experiences at restaurants because there's sure. not enough wait staff or less people, um, you know, so yeah, the workers are to blame for that, you know, and it's been clearly illustrated by at least some business owners that they don't have a problem with employment. Um, if you pay workers enough and make those jobs, not just any jobs, but jobs that are, that are worth decent jobs for someone to have, like any job that's worth having should be a decent job. Um, and so I think, I think uh, some Americans are coming around to that and, you know, and realizing that, uh, we've had, you know, the recovery from the, from the recession, you know, of 2007, 2008. And, and that didn't go terribly well for Americans, although it went really well for wealthy people. And then mm-hmm. this, this whole period of, you know, of COVID and, and essential work is like, you know, some of us can work from home, you know, via zoom and other things. And, but there's people who have to be, you know, in harm's way. And and if they're not getting paid well, you know, on one hand, we're kind of bowing down to them and acknowledge them as essential workers. But, you know, we need to put our money where our mouth is.
2: Yeah. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about that, because in the final chapter of your book, you identify a number of ways that we should rethink uh, the news about U.S. workers. Um, so you begin this with uh, with sort of thinking about the term job killers in a new way?
1: Yeah, I think one one thing we w- might want to think about, and I've been kind of encouraging people, I just had some, you know, simple uh, ways to think about that, but that uh, it actually might be corporations who are job killers. And I, I was uh, trying to calculate, you know, how many jobs might be there um, if we, if, you know, big corporations, at least the ones that we know about and have records of, you know, hadn't, offshored you know trillions of dollars and if mm-hmm. we brought if we brought that money back if we hadn't made that you know hidden that money from taxes and taxed it at the rates that it should be taxed you know we could uh, that would be enough to create you know in excess of 20 million jobs you know that are paid at least 15 dollars an hour i just kind of use that as a as a standard uh, since that was kind of the standard you know argument for what would be a decent job I realize even in a number of places that's that's still right. not even sufficient of course but but the idea is that uh, the, the job killers aren't labor unions There's, the labor unions have actually been the institution that has given us decent jobs historically in America uh, and where there aren't labor unions is oftentimes where we get the jobs that that aren't so good and the people who are killing those jobs are the you know the, the capitalist class that's hoarding money and actually not investing that back in workers, but instead, you know, hiding it from taxes and offshoring it. And, you know, that's money that should be in, a, in our economy. That's money that people worked for. I mean, they, you know, they, they didn't make it all by themselves. Uh, they actually, there were a lot of people that, uh, that did that labor that made, you know, people like Jeff Bezos rich, for example, or made, you know, the, the owners of Apple Computer rich. And we have these enormous trillion dollar valuation companies Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, you know a number of people working for them that that aren't making very much money and that that's certainly a problem.
2: yeah and, and that also leads us to one of the other things that you identify which is the the issue of excess compensation.
1: Yeah I mean there, you know the uh, thanks for mentioning that the you know back in the, the 50s and 60s I mean it was it was was uh, you know maybe 30 uh, to 60 times a regular worker's wage is what the the CEO would make and now we're to the point, you know where it's uh, you know 250 to 300 times uh, what what an average worker would make at that same company, and sometimes even much more than that. Yeah. And so you know how much compensation is enough compensation? So you have executives sitting on compensation boards um, and awarding that the kind of compensation they would like to other executives, and it just becomes this you know this very small group of people awarding more and more money to them, um, and it also um, a lot of the money is taxed at a low rate because it's uh, it's stock options, and so they don't even pay you know the taxes. I think uh, you know we've had uh, some executives talk about it that their that their secretaries might pay a high ta- higher tax rate than they earn.
2: Yeah, I think um, uh, uh, what's his name Buffett talks about that. Yeah, that's right, Warren
1: Buffett. So um, so that's you know those kind of things are a problem, um, and really speak to the the inequality. And that inequality, you know, it, it, at some point it comes around to kind of bite you on the rear end. And we're, we're seeing that, you know, with teachers and we're seeing that with, uh, um, other workers right now. I mean, oh, so there, the passion is certainly there. Um, the, the ability to organize is difficult, uh, at the same time, because, uh, we've not really seen an updating, uh, in, uh, in labor law. Although there's, there's certainly a good one that's, that's out there right now, the PRO Act, uh, that, uh, that's being, uh, that's put forward.
2: Well, we are seeing some updating. I mean, you, it, within the last few years, Michigan has become a right-to-work state. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's an update. Um,
1: uh, yeah, that, that's not a good update. No, you know, you're thinking, yeah, uh, what would be? Yeah, so um, so you know that kind of continues. I mean, we've seen more and more right-to-work states. Um, yeah, I'm in one in in Iowa too, and it's not a great experience. And we saw that you know a similar thing happened here that happened in Wisconsin, where there was a huge crackdown on the ability of, um, of public workers, uh, to, uh, to be able to, uh, you know, collectively bargain. So that just happened to us just a few years ago in Iowa. So it's not, a, not a great experience. And, and, you know, it starts the, the slow march to impoverishing, um, uh, public workers, right. They're just not, their, their level of compensation is going to, going to, you know, slowly decline. And I, I already seeing it happening at, at our university compared to peer institutions. Sure,
2: and that kind of leads also to the issue of taxation, which you address in the conclusion as well.
1: That's right. Um, So you know, it's it's the the right has been you know pushing for um, you know increasingly flat taxes, uh, which which wouldn't be you know the people who make the most pay the most. Um, The uh, the tax tax enforcement has been so lax that it just allows for um, so many people to go. Um, you know, unaudited and, and unpunished when they're actually flouting uh, the, the tax laws in, in the United States. So, to, if we actually taxed, uh, you know, the wealthy the way they should be taxed, um, and actually there's talk of this in, in uh, D.C. right now, and Congress doesn't all seem to be on the same page about it. But it would it would actually really increase our revenues uh, enormously. Um, and so, so it's not a matter we need to we need to um, you know lower taxes, and the, the whole myth of you know lower taxes increases prosperity. Is just not proven, you know, to be the case over over several decades that we've lived through now.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, you can, yeah. There there are a number of. I'm I'm interviewing someone on a book about income inequality later uh, this semester, and you know, we can we can clearly see that as society as the tax taxation becomes less progressive, um, we get these kind of inequalities and all of the problems that they start to create for the entire. The entire country, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit, little bit about the teacher insurgency. Uh, I think that's kind of where you end your book, um, and and sort of the changing shape or um, image of the working class.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's really impressive the um, the teacher strike, and I like I like the fact that you used insurgency um, because it uh, it's really um, it it happened mostly in states that were, you know, as we divide everything to red and blue, but it happened in, you know, more conservative states. And I think, um, teachers and people oftentimes, I like teachers because they kind of defy, you know, this, this idea of who the working class is. Um, it's usually like a a white hard hat, which is kind of like the stereotype, you know, and there certainly is, there are members of the working class that, that, that fit that, but, Um, one of the biggest groups are public employees and one of the biggest groups of public employees are teachers, uh, who are predominantly women, um, and predominantly well-educated too. I mean, you have to be, to be a teacher. And so, and yet, um, among, uh, among all people of that education level, they are the lowest paid people with, with those kinds of degrees. Um, and so, uh, it's really wonderful that they kind of, uh, because media, the media wasn't really covering the situation of teachers, um, the teachers actually going out and protesting, and I've talked about this in other books, uh, that uh, that gets the attention of the press, and sometimes you need to do that, and it's really important and effective to actually, um, when you feel like you've not been, you've been ignored by the media, when you feel like you've been ignored by politicians, to actually go out literally into the streets and protest um, gets people's attention. And so... Uh, that's been impressive um, and, and, and a good thing for the labor movement. The other good thing is that a number of media organizations themselves, as, as actually people um, who have not been treated well in the economy in the past couple of decades, uh, a number of employees have organized in places that you would never think would be organized like the you know the Los Angeles Times or the uh, Chicago right. Tribune, which were both owned by you know families that were very anti-labor for decades. Uh, to see those, you know, as they've gone through a number of different ownership models and and owners uh, to uh, for those uh, people to organize has been very impressive. So we've seen that in large and small newspapers, uh, digital news organizations as well. A lot of people organizing, and I think that that uh, people who write the news, you know, are certainly gonna, going to be a little bit more sensitive to what the situation is.
2: Yeah, and I think you know the teachers are important as well. Um... Because the the framing of that story was was just a little bit different. Uh, if you talk about a strike that had the potential to be disruptive to people's private lives, um, you know, a teacher strike is pretty serious. If all of a sudden, you know, I mean, we all just faced this with the pandemic. When your kids have no place to go to school, it kind of throws your entire schedule for a complete loop, and yet. With those, uh, with most of those strikes, you had support in the community for the teachers.
1: Yeah, what what's interesting about this and strikes tend to be more effective in these instances when when the public knows the people who are on strike. Um, I was uh, years ago, as in the late '90s, there was a UPS strike, and what was that was effective too because people know who their UPS delivery person is. If you get packages, you get to know that person. Um, same way with teachers. I mean, you know, and you probably know this person even better. You spend time and your kids spend time with these teachers. They're members of your community. Uh, they, you, you care about these people. They're caring for your kids and teaching your kids. And so you have a lot more empathy towards uh, workers that you, that you, um, that you know and like, uh, and in this case, while it is, is disruptive, I think the teachers made a really good case for, um, a saying that I like is that, um, teachers' working conditions, our students' learning conditions. And I think they really made that come clear. I mean, and when you started to see the media, especially the national media, look at the, the horrible classroom situations and then realize this thing that happens all the time, that teachers spend hundreds of dollars themselves to oh, buy yeah. school supplies every year for things that you know that we, the taxpayers, should be paying for. I mean, you start to realize these people are saints and they've sacrificed, sacrificed a lot and we deserve to, to pay them better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the other part to the conclusion talks about the, the democratic role of journalism or the function of uh, journalism in a democratic society. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, it's really important um, for the news media to kind of rethink what happened in the late 60s and early 70s when they started to be, focus more on an upscale audience. So um, when, you, when you focus just on a very limited demographic, uh, you lose sight of the fact that, that the news media's focus should be on all citizens. And that is, is its very uh, democratic purpose, that it's supposed to be a check on government, but also something that, that if there is a bias in the media, it's a bias that should be in favor of citizens. It should be in favor of democracy. And to lose focus of that and just see yourself as, as purely a business uh, is to really miss out on on what the purpose of journalism is. So as as news organizations, and I think it, as there's been upheaval in news organizations as well, we talked about you know there's more news workers joining labor unions. But as the the whole model uh, for financing uh, journalism has changed um, and is being challenged, we're seeing more nonprofit journalism, and that's getting back to this idea that we don't have to make boatloads of money like like newspapers did for many. Many many decades, uh, but instead we should you know think about what's the best way to bring news to people and to all people, not just a, a group of upscale consumers. Because honestly, you know appealing to up, upscale consumers isn't going to cut it for newspapers these days. So they have to real rethink uh, how they can appeal to a larger group of people. And part of that, I would argue, is you know going back and making sure you're talking to everyone, you know all the classes of people, not just the upscale readers.
2: Yeah. Although again. You know, one of the problems is with that word "citizen" in general, and, and I think it's—I think journalists and maybe even the rest of us have a hard time conceptualizing anymore what a citizen is apart from a consumer.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to to uh, to wrap your head around. I think um, because we've oftentimes uh, made those uh, kind of equal things, citizens and consumers, and there's. There's a big difference there. Um, we have to be able to, you know, as journalists uh, think about everyone, you know, not just based on, you know, how much they can buy or what they can buy, but the fact that we're we're all we should all be equal citizens, you know, in the in the eyes of journalism and, and under, under the law too, for that matter. And that's that's it's it's something that needs to, that we constantly re- need to remind ourselves that that's the purpose of journalism.
2: Yeah. Um, well, Chris Martin, I want to thank you for this book. As I think I mentioned to you when when we were setting up the interview, I had the opportunity to assign it to a graduate class and it went over very well. Um, and I'd like to ask what are, what can we expect from you next?
1: (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk, Tom. And, um, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm kind of looking at things. Um, I, I've been in touch with some, uh, some colleagues in Australia and I'm thinking about doing some maybe some more comparative work about media uh, and, and labor in the working class uh, with the United States and Australia and maybe some other countries. Um, so that, I think that might be kind of an interesting uh, take on it.
2: Well that would sounds exciting. Would you get the <laughs> chance to travel to Australia? Um, I don't know. That might that might be in there. Maybe, maybe I'll
1: just be Zooming for the rest of my life. Oh, too.
2: Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Christopher Martin. Uh, once again, um, he is the author of No Longer Newsworthy. How the Mainstream Media Abandoned the Working Class from ILR Press, an imprint of Cornell University University Press. And this has been the education channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Tom DeSena. Thank you very much for tuning in.